So growing up here in Westerville, um, I got to experience a lot of high school football. And there are two teams over the past 10 years that kind of have unique attributes about them. One of them is right here, Westerville South. And so Westerville South uh, has really, really good athletes on their football team. When I was in school, a guy named Jalen Gill went to Ohio State. It seems like almost every year, a guy from Westerville South football team from Ohio State or some Big Ten team, uh, Division One. they just got great athletes. But what's funny is they almost never win. Um, and the reason that they don't win with such great athletes is the last 10 years, their coaches haven't been great, and they don't play together. They go, hey, you're going to Ohio State. Here's the ball. Do something with it. Now, a team that is also unique over the last 10 years has been Olin Tangy Liberty. And they are unique for the exact opposite reason of Westville South. Olin Tangy Liberty are a bunch of guys that look like me, kind of not the Ohio State D1 player you'd imagine, yet they always win games. And I think they win games for two reasons, and it's the exact opposite reason of Westville South. They have the best coach, Coach Hale, over the last 10 years. He just dominates high school football. And the kids are obedient to Coach Hale, and they work together as a unit. They almost give it to one guy. They're, all of them are there on team tackles. They're making the plays together. It's one unit just forging through. And so you see a bunch of these athletes, and all of a sudden, every year, they're in the state semis and just making it great through high school football. Now, in our text today, uh, we are going to see a much more significant team, and that's the local church. We're going to see the importance of being obedient to Jesus, we're going to see the importance of unity within the church. And we're going to see how we can be the very best member for our church. But before we get to our text, I think some context will be helpful for us. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. The very first verse of this was showing us that it was written to the saints along with the overseers and deacons. This is a heartfelt letter to a local body of believers. The expository Bible commentary in Philippians says, all the letters Paul wrote to the churches, this one to the Philippians, stand out as being the most personal. No sharp rebukes of the congregation marks joyful spirit. No disturbing problems threaten the progress of the church. The warnings are of cautionary and preventative nature that are always in order. The frequent emphasis on Christ explains the underlying relationship of Paul to his readers. Paul was close to the Philippians. He cared about them. He cared about their spiritual health. And he cared about the love that they have for Christ and for one another. And so Paul was just trying to encourage the Philippians with this letter. And so my hope that today, as a body of believers, as citizens, we'd be encouraged today too. So I'm going to read Philippians 1, 27 to 18. If you're using a blue provided Bible, that's going to be found on page 980. Let me start in verse 27 of chapter 1. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from self's ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I not run or labor in vain. Even if I may be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text, would you allow me to speak clearly? Would you open our hearts to the beauty of your word? Be with us now. Amen. If you want a summary statement for the sermon today, it is let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel through unity and good work. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel through unity and good work. He, uh, luckily for Jimmy, he had three point lines for his uh, sermon outline. I have three points, so it kind of worked out perfect there. Section one on that notes page is going to be unity and courage. That's verses 27 to 30. Section 2 is unity and humility. That's verses 1 through 11. And then section 3 is good work. That's verses 12 to 18. So starting with section 1. The beginning of verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When I think of being worthy of something, I think of things like someone doing a great job at work so they get worthy of the promotion. Or if you want to talk about athletes, I've been before, someone having a great season of the sport they play, so they're worthy of the league MVP. The list could go on, but the general principle is there's a reward, and to obtain this reward, you have to have excellent actions. Now, if we apply this to the opening verse, this would mean that our actions have to be excellent in order that we obtain the gospel of Christ. Now, Rob is probably nervous of that statement, but luckily, this is the exact opposite of what Paul is trying to communicate. And to help us understand how that's true, the New American Commentary says, Here, Paul used the verb, conduct yourselves as citizens, which in Greek is politio. It was a word built upon the Greek polis, which means city, and had overtones of citizens' responsibility. No doubt the readers would have associated the word with the Roman citizenship, which they prized so much. This was Paul's way of reminding them of the obligations of people who participate in a society. In this case, the society was a Christian whose strongest ties were in heaven. So this sentence from Paul really means, because you have become citizens of heaven by the gospel of Christ, your manner of life, your actions, should reflect your citizenship. Because God has saved you and brought you into his kingdom, act like it, not the other way around. And uh, the CSB translation phrases it very nicely. It says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
people that are already citizens of heaven should live in a manner worthy. Becoming a citizen precedes living life in a worthy manner. And although this is absolutely essential to understand, it seems that the main reason that Paul is saying this is to fight an antinomian way of life. Antinomian is this fancy word that just means anti-law. And it is this false belief that because God has saved us from our past, present, and future sins, how we act, what we do, it, it, it doesn't matter. We don't follow all that God has commanded. And if you're like me, we see this a lot in our churches today and in our culture. Another word for this is nominal Christianity. It's believing that our actions have little to tie to our faith. Now Paul, with this verse, is clearly teaching against an antinomian or nominal Christianity. The opening command is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, to be obedient to the gospel. And funny enough, this command is actually the whole point of the letter of Philippians. Dr. Jarvis Williams from Southern Seminary Health points out that the obedience to the gospel is the primary message of Philippians. This whole letter, be obedient to the gospel. So Paul is trying to teach us here and in this whole letter that it is very, very important for Christians to be obedient to the gospel. So a natural question that arises is, why is this important? Why is it such a big deal? Why do we need to be obedient to the gospel? I, I, I think of three answers that might be said. One might be, because that's just what we do as Christians, which I don't think is a very good answer. And the second answer might be, well, because the Bible says so, of course, we just read it, be obedient to the gospel. Well, that's a better answer, but I still think there's a lot more to it. And, and I think early in Philippians, in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may prove what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So what does obedience up to the gospel look like in a person in these verses? It looks like love abounding with knowledge and discernment. Being able to approve what is excellent. Being pure and blameless. Being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Being filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And the most important piece, the glory and praise of God. So I'm not suggesting to you that obedience to the gospel makes life easier. And I'm certainly not suggesting that obedience to the gospel makes life more secularly prosperous. But I am suggesting that obedience to the gospel leads to a better life, a life with more, filled with more joy and more satisfaction that's completely tied to God's love for us. And most importantly, obedience to the gospel brings glory and praise to God, which is the very reason for our existence. So the rest of our time with that foundation, we're going to see what obedience to the gospel looks like. The rest of verse 27 says, That whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now remember that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And the first thing that Paul says we should do to obey the gospel is to be unified with other believers. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unity within the church is a super big deal. When we went through 1 Corinthians, that was pretty much our main thrust, to be unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see that unity in the church is a big deal here. And this is why having a robust and agreed upon statement of faith really matters. 
You can see at the end of the verse that unity is for the faith of the gospel. The statement of faith is just an expression of what our church and any other church thinks is necessary and true about the gospel. A church is to protect the gospel through unity around the common faith. A church is also not divided with things that are secondary to the common faith. So we're moving into a new church building. If Joe wants green chairs and Jenny wants black chairs, who cares? Flip a coin. Move on with our lives. But if Joe wants to stop praying on our Sunday morning services and Jenny says, I don't think that's a great idea, there's a fight that's going to happen, and it's important. We need to fight for unity. So we need to hold tightly to the things that matter. We need to fight them. But we need to hold very loosely to things that do not affect the life of the church. And this is also why, to be a member of the church, you must agree upon this statement of faith. Allowing anyone and everyone into a church would just be sowing seeds of disunity from the beginning. Unity is very important for the sake of the body and for the sake of the gospel. And these are just a couple reasons why the statement of faith and biblical church membership are so stinking important. Now, along with unity, having courage is a way in which we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 28 says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So the command here is to not be frightened. And Paul says that not being frightened is a clear sign to the opponents of their destruction and to the Philippians of their salvation. Now, I think that this is very interesting. And I wonder why is it a sign of their destruction? And I think we see in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So holding firm to the truth that Jesus will build his church. And nobody's going to do anything about it. That is proof of their destruction. Because their only end is destruction. They cannot succeed. Jesus said, no one will succeed in me building my church. And the way we show that is through our fearlessness. Our fearlessness of trusting Jesus' promise is the proof of their destruction. Now, why is fearlessness a sign of the Philippians' salvation? Well, Jesus says earlier in Matthew, in verse, chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're more valuable than many sparrows. So Jesus is showing us he's completely in control of all things. He says of the 10 million billion birds in the world, not one of them's going to fall to the ground unless I say so. So if we trust in that, if we take his word that we are more value than many sparrows, our fearlessness in that reality will prove our salvation because it will show them that we trust in a God who saved us and is way more important than anything that they can do. We are his people. God is working with all things for our good. We have great encouragement to not fear those of this world. Now, a great thing about the local church is that it is much easier to be courageous when unified in the body. Paul starts with obeying the gospel. He goes to unity and he says, be courageous. We are not meant to do this life on our own. Paul is writing that the whole church will be courageous, not just one guy and one girl. Just like anything else in life, being courageous is much, much easier for people around you. Now moving on, verses 29 and 30 say, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The Philippians have been granted faith and suffering for the sake of Christ. Praise be to God that our faith is not our own doing, but of God's. He has granted us. We receive it as a gift. That is glorious. Yet in the same manner, it's very interesting that he says you'll be granted suffering. One commentary says, if we question the propriety of referring to suffering as a privilege and a gracious gift, we must remember that the New Testament regards suffering as God's means of achieving his gracious purposes, both in his own son and in all believers. God miraculously, mysteriously uses suffering for our good. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Christian, if you're suffering right now, if you're experiencing hard times, life's not at its high point, be encouraged that God is using this season for your sanctification and for your good. Maybe hard to see, and man, is it certainly hard to do. But you can count your trials as joy, because God is working for you and for your good. And just like being courageous is easier with the church, man, oh man, is it easier to suffer when with the body as well. Paul put unity and fearlessness and suffering together. We are made to live in a community, a community that is united around the same faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 30, we see that where the suffering would come from that they were experiencing, it was the same suffering that Paul had, and this is just persecution that comes from sharing the gospel. They, they both, Paul and the Philippians, experienced persecution from Jews and Gentiles. So in these first four verses, we have seen the importance of living in a manner worthy of the gospel. We have seen that unity in the church is absolutely essential. We've seen that there's a great reason for us to be fearless. We've seen that our faith and our suffering has both been granted to us for Christ's glory and for our good. So moving on to section two, we're going to look at a requirement for unity. In section two, I titled Unity and Humility. This is verses one through 11. Verses one and two say, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul grounds their unity in four rhetorical questions that all relate to Christian fellowship. First, he says, any encouragement in Christ, meaning think about the great encouragement that comes from the united Christ. Second, he says, any comfort from love, meaning think about how much Christ loves you all. Third, he says, think about uh, any participation in the spirit, which means think about how wonderful fellowship you have with the Holy Spirit. Any participation in the Spirit, what wonderful fellowship we have. And lastly, it says, the affection and sympathy, meaning think about the beautiful affection and sympathy the Lord has towards you. So Paul is saying, because of our great fellowship and unity with God, be unified with one another. A.W. Tozer once said, unity in Christ is not something to be achieved, it is something to be recognized. Our fellowship with God is the basis in which we have fellowship with one another. Verse 27 talked about striving and standing firm in unity. Actions. Do it. These two verses talk about the unity that already exists. There's nothing to be done. For those who have been united to Christ, we have great unity with one another. We can stand firm and strive only because of our unity in Christ. 
We can be of the same mind and have the same love precisely because we're unified in the same God. So what does this unified fellowship look like? What is it required to make it work? Well, verses 3 and 4 say, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So for a church to be unified, self-centeredness must not be a dominant presence. It can't be there. Unification requires that we look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like we mentioned earlier, if Joe wants the black chair and Jenny wants the green chair, who cares? And if people were fighting over those kind of things and they wouldn't budge, we would have fights and quarrels and disunity all the time. But if we counted others as more significant than ourselves, we would understand a huge part of living a life manner worthy of the gospel. And just think about it. Self-centeredness is the basis of sin. Selfishness can be traced back in all of our sin. When we sin, we're either putting our own interests above God's or above someone else's. So to be obedient to the gospel and be unified as a body, we must in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. Luckily for us, we have the best example of humanity, this humility this world has ever known. Verses 5 through 8 say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now just think about how backwards this is. The God who created all things. The God who in Revelation 1 is described as hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like furnace bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. The most glorious and majestic being in all of existence. And what does he do? He takes on the same likeness of his creation. He puts aside his majesty for human flesh. And in this human flesh, he does not use it to be served, but he serves. And he humbled himself to the point of death, being brutally murdered and tortured by and for the very things he created. So if Jesus, the creator of all things, the king of kings and the lord of lords, was willing to humble himself to the utmost degree, are we not going to follow in his example? Jesus is the only one who deserves to be counted more significant. He's the only one who deserves to be served. Yet he took the form of a servant and gave us his life. We don't deserve to be served. We are certainly not worthy of being more significant than anyone else. So if we want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, if we want to have a unified church, we must follow Christ and not look to our own interests, but look to the interests of others. Now we see the backwards realities going to become forwards here in verses 9 and 11, which says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is rightly restored back to where he was in his throne, where he is above every name. Where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So as we saw that Jesus came to earth, he gave up his life. Here we see that he is victorious over death, which was shown in his resurrection and his ascending. Yet his death only covers the sins of those who are willingly going to bow the knee in this lifetime. So if you're in this room and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, 
you will one day bow down to Jesus. It's going to happen. If you wait until this life is over and you're forced to bow to me, Jesus' death will uncover your sins. Instead, because God is just to punish wrongdoing, you have to pay for your own sin yourself because you did not choose to take Jesus' sacrifice for you. So I urge you, it's not too late. Look at the great love we saw that Jesus has for us. He gave up his majesty, gave up his throne for you. He died and became a servant, being brutally murdered, so that you can bow to me and accept the forgiveness of sins. Please, bow your knee to him. Confess that Jesus is Lord. If you have any questions about this, please talk to me or anyone else here today. There's nothing more that we would love than to further explain what it looks like to see Jesus as a loving Savior. So in section two, to summarize, we saw that unity is already something that we have in Christ. We saw that humility is required to make this unity possible. And we saw that Christ is our ultimate example of humility. And we saw Jesus' saving work through his death and resurrection. Section three, we are going to see that living a life of a man worthy of the gospel also has some personal implications. And so I titled section three, Good Work. Verses 12 and 13 say, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, we've come to this command of obedience. Previously, the command was tied very heavily to the church body as a whole. Here, the command follows some personal applications. First, to work out your own salvation with a meaning that is very similar to live a manner worthy of the gospel. Another way we can say this is make your salvation work in your life. Because you have salvation, work towards thoughts and actions that reflect that you're saved. Very similar to how we saw in verse 27. So the way the Christian does this right here is says with fear and trembling. A helpful commentary on this says with fear and trembling is no contradiction of the joyful spirit permitting this letter. Christian joy is the experience of every believer in God's will. The holy fear of God that trembles at the thought of sin is also the attitude of the careful Christian. So the careful Christian trembles at the thought of sin because they know the importance of obedience that we talked about earlier. Sin does the opposite of what obedience does. It does not glorify God, and it dampens the fruits of righteousness in our lives. So if you want to be a careful Christian, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling by avoiding sin and striving for obedience. However, when we bring verse 13 in play, there's a very interesting paradox. It says, work out your own salvation. And in the very next sentence, it says, for God who works in you to do and to work for his good pleasure. So who's doing the work? Is it us or is it God? Now to understand this, we have to understand this biblical principle that I call doctrine and practice. When I preached this at Gethsemane, Pete helpfully pointed out, well, that's called uh, the doctrine of concurrence, which I didn't know that existed, but now I do. I call it doctrine and practice. This is how I think about it. The Bible often explains something of the same reality from God's perspective, which is what I call doctrine, and from human perspective, which is what I call practice. So a great example of this is our salvation. A Christian must confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in him to be saved. That is true. Yet, God says that he's going to rip out a person's heart 
that is a stone heart. He's going to give them a heart of flesh so that they can have the ability to follow him. So which is it? Is God doing the salvation work or is the Christian doing the salvation work? Well, the doctrine is God's perspective and it's that he is going to rip out the heart and give them a new one. He's going to do the heart-changing work. Yet the practice, the outworking of that, the human perspective, is that we must declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. So to sum it up, the principle is the doctrine allows for the practice to take place. So if we apply this to our verses here in 12 and 13, the human perspective or practice is verse 12, and God's perspective or doctrine is verse 13. God works in us to have the desire and ability to will and to work for his good pleasure, yet we still have to practice and experience the practical outworkings. It is our duty to do the work that he's implanted in our hearts. So to answer the original question, who is doing this work? Well, God does the work in our hearts so we can do the work in practice. More implications of gospel obedience are found in verses 14 and 15, which say, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our gospel obedience must be done without grumbling or disputing. The reason listed is because we are to shine as lights in the world. We are Christians who complain and fight about everything. This crooked and twisted generation is going to look in, and they're just going to see themselves. They're not going to see Jesus. They're going to go, we, we, we fight and grumble and dispute in the world all the time. What's different about this? They're not going to see something shining as lights in the world. So not only will complaining and fighting be miserable, for the people looking in, but it's going to be miserable for the church. Who wants to be part of a church where everyone's just grumbling, disputing, and bickering and fighting about everything? What kind of unity is that? So if we just remember our marching orders as Christians, to go and make disciples of all nations, just think our evangelism will be damned if we complain and fight all the time. So as Christians, let's strive to see the best in every circumstance. Let's not be like the world and nitpick everything we can. Let's be positive people. Not fake and unable to empathize in hard times, but people who know the goodness of their God and seek to act like they really do know it. Doing this will be both for the good of our church and for all those who are looking in. Now the three closing verses of our text say today, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice or offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So the way that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel is by holding fast to the word of life. Scripture is our north star. The only way we are able to follow all that we've seen today is that we stay connected to the word of life. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we must stay connected to Jesus through his word. For apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him and with his word, we can follow what is said here today. We can bear much fruit. And the fruit of the Philippians caused Paul to be proud of them when his life is over. Their fruit signified that he did not run or labor in vain. And as you see, he's in great danger for his missionary work, yet he's willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of the Philippians. And this is not something he wants the Philippians to be sad about. 
He says, be glad and rejoice that in God's kindness, you have been brought into eternity with me. So in the same way, he urges the Philippians to rejoice with him. And we too should rejoice. For if we have a Christian in this room today, God has saved us and brought us into his glorious light. We have much reason for rejoicing. Now the kids on the home change football team, they all had to be obedient to their coach. They had to be unified as a body. They had to seek to be the very best player as an individual as they could for the good of the team. In the same way we saw in our text today, that we must be obedient to the gospel, which is the word of life. We must strive for unity in our local bodies of Christ. And we must seek to be the best individuals as we can as members of this church for the good of the church. And as we do this, trusting in all these things that God is the one working in our hearts to make it happen. So let's so let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel through unity and good work. Let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel through unity and good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that instructs us and shows us of the great beauties of Christ and how he has unified us together in himself. Father, help our church, Citizens Church, strive for unity. Help us not think and dwell on things that do not matter. Help us not bicker and grumble and hold tight to the meaningless things of this life, but Lord, help us hold very tight to things that are important to the common faith. Help us strive for unity. Help us be humble people. Help us look to the interests of others as you did for us. Lord, help us be courageous and fearless because you are in control of all things and working for our good. Thank you for all of this, Lord, in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.